VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, September the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonts King, he's sitting in Bernuth in the producer's chair this morning, so you'll be speaking with Fonts when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, hopefully, if you were lucky enough to enjoy a long Labor Day weekend, we hope you had a, a good one. Glorious weather. A little bit not so much this morning, but it was certainly a lovely long weekend for most of the province, and hopefully you had yourself the opportunity to take the final long weekend of the summer. All right, so the long weekend was a good one for the Galway Hitmen. They did it. National champions of men's fast-pitch softball again, defending their title. I think that gives them nine overall. Truly incredible stuff. So congratulations to, to Galway and all the local teams that were in the tournament and the tournament organized with be Gary Corbett and Ivan Hapgood and the like. So huge crowds all weekend, so people enjoyed it. And congratulations to Galway. A little bit of baseball. Congratulations to the Paradise Phantoms. They're the provincial champions in the 13U AAA division. Beat the, the Townies 6-5 on Sunday morning. The team MVP for Paradise, Ethan Jones. Paradise Phantoms are your provincial 13U AAA champs. All right. Uh, Finn Manning. I don't know if you know who Finn is. Finn was a graduate of the Fielding's Athletic Association as a soccer player. His father, Bernie, big time involved with the NLSA and, of course, the Fieldians themselves. Bernie was a fine player. So Bernie's son, Finn, is playing in the NCAA at Ripon University. Scored his first NCAA goal over the weekend, too. So congratulations to young Finn Manning. Got to like that. We're out there everywhere playing top quality stuff. All right, back to school. You may indeed learn in a history lesson, if you're a student back in the K-12 system, about Ferdinand Magellan, my favorite explorer. So his ship, the Victoria, a part of his expedition to circumnavigate the world, returned to port in Spain today in 1522. Okay, so the teachers, admin, and staff were back in school. Now, teachers, for the most part, have been in day after day after day for a little while preparing their classroom. You know, most of the de dedicated, determined professional teachers, they've done exactly that. They've been in there getting ready. The admin, of course, doing some last-minute interviews, trying to fill all the job vacancies, staff making sure the school is spick and span for the returning students. But we always have some questions. You know, one ultimately will always be how many vacant positions there are there on day one. Students return tomorrow, of course. Then it's whether or not the supports that your child had in place last year, student assistant, whatever additional help they, they need in the classroom, will it be there when they return to school this year? It's always one of the mysteries of the school year that boggles my mind. We knew that your child needed some additional supports in, say, grade four. They're in the same school going to grade five, and the parents happen to go back to admin and to the district to ask and wonder where are my child's additional supports that are well understood. So we'll see how that pans out this year. And then I wonder how much attention has been given to the issue that was highlighted by the child and youth advocate at the time was Jackie Lake Kavanaugh regarding the chronically absent students. Some 10% of students in the province are chronically absent from school. 75% of those who are chronically absent in grade 6 don't graduate from high school. I mean, it's a huge problem. We've talked with various ministers over the years about that report and whether or not they were going to implement a formal mechanism to understand why the child is absent and what can be done about it to move them off the chronically absent list to try to deal with whatever it is, something at home, insecurity, transportation, 
medical issues? Like, who knows why the children are absent? And that becomes the key issue, is we just don't know why. But if the numbers are what the numbers are, 75% of the chronically absent grade sixers don't get through high school. And we know what pressures that will bring to bear if you don't finish your high school education. All right. This is an interesting story. We've spoken to people down in Marystown who were quite frustrated with the fact that they no longer have early French immersion available. There was low student enrollment for kindergarten this year. It looks like it's much stronger next year. The numbers would have satisfied keeping French immersion in place. The school district was unwilling to do, you know, a multiple multiple grade classroom just for this one year to see them through. And so now no French immersion in that part of the province. People will always wonder, what's the big deal, right? You know, it's pretty much an English-speaking province. And, of course, there's pockets of French, not only here, but right across the country, and not just in the province of Quebec either. But there are over 100 bilingual job openings in government right now in Newfoundland and Labrador. A hundred. So two of them are, of course, federal departments, whether it be the Canada Revenue Agency and Employment and Social Development Canada. Then there was also jobs inside of four different provincial government ministries where they're looking for bilingual candidates. You know, on the federal front, they need to hire Newfoundlanders for those jobs or to bring people from elsewhere in the country to the province to hold those jobs because, of course, we're open for business four and a half hours before they are in British Columbia. So sometimes when people just overlook the actual implications of the Official Languages Act, it actually creates some job opportunities for at least 100 additional Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to take these good-paying, secure jobs. And we know that there are hundreds of bilingual candidates working inside the federal government, living right here in the province, and, of course, many jobs inside different uh, provincial ministries. So, you know, it's all not quite as simple as, well, it's just a curiosity thing. Well, it does you better when you're talking about critical thinking and problem solving, you know, to expand your ability to learn because you've learned a second language at a young age. It has long-term implications, and there's one example of it. All those job openings available. And, of course, if you're a family scrambling for daycare this week, you are not alone. Uh, A couple of email exchanges with one family where the mother is now taking a leave of absence because she cannot find daycare for her infant. She has some flex hours over the summertime, same as her husband, they're able to cover it off. And then, of course, incorporating friends of the family, the nan and pop scenario that we all are familiar with. But now, given the fact that some of the summer flex hours are gone for both her and her husband, starting this week, she tells me, She's taking a leave of absence. Can't find a daycare position, a daycare spot for her infant. Amazing stuff. If you want to talk about it, we can do it. All right. So now that you've been out shopping for your favorite beverage in the last few days, of course, since the first of September, the sugar tax in full force, and I think it's safe to say a bit of a chaotic operation at this moment in time. There are still concerns with remittance at the wholesaler level and or the retailer and what's being taxed and what is not. People have sent me pictures of their receipt for a diet drink that had the sugar tax applied when, in fact, we were all told they were exempt. Then you get into some of the nitty-gritties about what kinds of juices are being taxed and what have you. And this one here is a glaring example of just how important it can be for some. I don't know if it's based on someone's socioeconomic position, but... Some people like to buy the powdered, uh, the powdered choice and then just mix it at home. So this particular product is uh, Nesty Lemon Iced Tea Powder. Okay, it's powder. It costs $7.89 for the package itself. But based on how many liters of water can be added to max out the powdery iced tea, the tax implication is $6.11 on top of the package that is 
So we're told by the government that they don't anticipate that there be any jobs lost. Well, I guarantee you, what was once seven eighty nine, now with an additional six dollars eleven cents in tax, those products are going to sit on the shelf. And I mean, I don't, you know, it's not anything about Nestle. It's about the price. People are very price sensitive for the obvious reasons. And no end in sight for so many products that we just consider to be very normal purchases. Not luxury items, not buying our own Gulf Streams and stuff. Powdered iced tea, $7.89 plus now $6.11. These are going to have implications. And whether that person, and look, I'm not trying to generalize because so many people who might have $10 million in the bank might love this product. But if you're trying to stretch a dollar at home, you know, maybe not even putting the full amount of the powder in with the couple of liters of water to make some fairly tasty iced tea. Who knows? Now what are their options going to become? But it has been chaotic. So people are, are telling me that they paid tax on a diet option, which we were told were exempt. So is that simply confusion at the retail level? I don't know. But when it's chaotic, it's a problem for everybody, government included. And then you consider some of the things that they're going to fund with this, whatever the revenue stream might look like. $9 million. That was a number that was thrown around many, many times. Yes, it's a good thing to expand funding for a programs like Kids Eat Smart. Absolutely. Absolutely a good idea to spend a half a million dollars on uh, prenatal infant nutrition supplements. And then the place that they're going to put a big chunk of the money is into the fig- physical activity tax credit. You know, it's just a little bit misguided in that if we're trying to ensure that everybody has a chance, young children of all ages into your teens has a chance to be involved in some physical activity, organized stuff. Of course, you don't need to be in a league or part of an association to be active. You can just go out by the door and run around, play tag. But there's a lot of life lessons learned when you have coaches and teammates and the tutelage that comes with it and playing for the name on the front of the jersey, not the one on the back of the jersey. There's lots of things that are real upsides as you grow older, habits that you will form, allegiances that you will make, friends that you'll make. So, but if I can't afford to put my child in, a tax credit is really of no value to me because it's just another, it's just another hurdle that's right there in front of me thinking, boy, I'd love to be able to avail of that tax credit. And how they're going to apply this these monies, still really not fully understood. But do you want to take it on? I think it's <laughs> I think it's an issue. All right, and then don't look now. The price of milk for the second time this year is going up by some 2.5 cents. It equals about 2 cents a liter. And people will, you know, scoff at that and say it's 2 cents a liter. Get over it. Every time we see an increase in anything, it just bleeds into our psyche that things are getting away from us. Because it's not just milk and it's not just pop. It's all kinds of stuff. Some things have come back to worth a little bit regarding inflationary pressures or cost of living impact, but up another 2.5%. That's after it went up $0.06 cents in February. So we all know the implications, whether it be the Canadian Dairy Commission, and they manage uh, the dairy supply management issue, which is always a controversial uh, matter and process or structure for pricing dairy products. So the dairy farmers of Canada, obviously, with the spikes they've seen, feed increased by 35%. Additives increased 50%. Fertilizer, 85%. So things have been really difficult, especially for the small, medium-sized farmer. This won't be a massive return to them and on their bottom line. But when the advocacy group, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, they went to the commission, and they've got their second price hike of the year. So again, two cents a liter, but two cents more than you were paying before. All right.
That's out there. A couple other cost of living measures. It looks like the Canadian Transportation Agency, and I know not everyone has the opportunity to travel because that's exorbitant cost, as we, are all, as we all know. But when the airlines have played footloose and fancy free with not paying compensation now for flights that have been delayed, postponed, or canceled, they call it safety matters, mostly because they couldn't staff up their own aircraft. Now, some of it might be concerns with the airport itself. Some of it might be concerns with security. That's all fair and true. But coming September the 8th, they are going to be forced to pay the compensation as they rightfully should. So, of course, it might not be a massive return or concern of yours because you're worried about the price of anything at the grocery store, let alone the prices of, the, of a rental car or something in, in Paris, France, but for some it would be a concern. Also, some questions ongoing now about where the provinces are going to come down and how they apply a carbon tax. We, of course, had a bilateral agreement with the federal government to apply our own carbon tax here on fuels. But one of the exemptions was for home heating. So while people say it'd be nice to be on the federal scheme, if I'm going to have to pay a carbon tax, the federal scheme, which includes a rebate, might be great. Except federal carbon tax would include a tax on home heating fuels. So let's be careful what we wish for. You might think the carbon tax is idiotic. It should be scrapped no matter what, and no matter how, what province or federal government thinks how it could or should be applied. If we're going to continue with the path we're on in this province, and the implications on fuels at the pump, it might sound good to be eligible for a rebate under the federal mechanism, but here we come, fast-tracking into the winter months, when all of a sudden the price of home heating fuels will be a much bigger concern than maybe over this nice, warm, sunny summer. But we negotiated an exemption, or the government negotiated an exemption on home heating fuels uh, under the Ball government when they struck a deal with the federal government. Okay, I'll just click that in there. And then it's the comment, well, just drink water. You know what? If you live in and around where I live, that's fair enough because I have the luxury of being able to turn on the tap and have some nice, clean, crisp, cold drinking water right there at my fingertips. Not everybody in the province does. Some of the updated numbers from the province and the Federation of Municipalities is pretty clear. There are tons of people in this province with absolutely no opportunity to turn on their tap and enjoy what I can in the east end of town, clean, crisp, potable drinking water. 160 communities are in that predicament. So almost 50,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have not had access to clean water for two years, some communities for decades. Decades. Now, there has been some work apparently done in some communities. There's some 50 proposals, cost-share proposals, that are being considered to upgrade chlorination systems or whatever it is impacting the, the dirty, muddy brown and black water. You know, look, one community reports, if it's some days it's not bad, but if it rained the day before, don't bother. Because we know what the rain does when it stirs up the water, groundwater, and otherwise. And so, you know, just drink water is a little bit easier said than done for so many people all across the province. You want to talk about it? Let's do it. All right. So, scary news coming from the Brea Renewable Fuel Facility. Of course, as people will call it, come by chance. A flash fire. An explosion. Eight people initially were hospitalized. Two have since been discharged. But, I mean, those issues, they, the implications are felt far and wide, right across the province. Hopefully everyone has a speedy recovery and they can have a full, complete, comprehensive investigation to find out what went on out at that facility. But scary times. So for everyone working on an industrial site, a commercial site, or I suppose wherever you are, you can get hurt on the job today. And, of course, celebrating labor yesterday, Scary times out at Brea Renewable Fuels in Come By Chance, but um, fans, I can hear, no, I can't, 
Uh, okay, that's good. We're going to speak with their union rep right after our first break here. But that's scary stuff out there. And I don't know, man. Sometimes watching the news, you want to be informed, you want to see what's happening, but then you see and hear the mass murder rampage, the bloody rampage in Saskatchewan. Ten people are dead, another 18 injured. One of the suspects has been found dead. The wounds apparently are not self-inflicted. You know, it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary, terrible story. But then, of course, the social media feeds make it even worse when people reply with some mindless nonsense about guns and then, in fact, they're indigenous. But there are some larger questions. You know, how the country approaches and the parole boards approach parole. One of them has a long list of violence, long list. It was not considered a high risk to reoffend by the parole board. So that's always a concern. Then it's about how the RCMP deal with such matters, and, you know, we, we hearken back to Nova Scotia and how long it took the RCMP to warn the public that there was danger afoot. Some concerns being echoed around in and around Saskatchewan about that exact same matter, but hopefully the other suspect is found immediately because that story is mind-blowing. As well, one more before we get to the break and your telephone call. So the province, federal and uh, federal uh, representatives and provincial representatives just came back from Norway looking at tunnels, obviously to adjudicate the potential for a fixed link between Labrador and the island. So that's interesting. And one fellow, you know, you know we talk about that link, and now we'll expend it to power being put down or wheeled from Labrador to the island. Muskrat Falls is one of the most vocal opponents to the project, Cabot Martin. Cabot Martin died over the weekend at the age of 78. I was lucky enough to know Cabot a little bit. He was a giant, and he was a powerhouse. And it's not just he, the submissions he made through the Uncle Gnarly blog or what have you, his long professional experience on legal and matters of geology, Deer Lake Oil and Gas, and of course, as one of the architects of the Atlantic Accord, arguably the most important document in the province. He was a legal and a senior policy advisor to Brian Peckford in the late 80s, and he never went away. I mean, he was on top of things that had implications regarding this province from the day he set foot as a professional man. You know, he just made a submission about green hydrogen to Des Sullivan's blog, the Uncle Gnarly blog, but it's really the impact he had with the Atlantic Accord that I think really jumps out at me regarding his career. So there was a lot of problems. Even when the ruling went all the way to the Supreme Court, there was some shrugging of shoulders of thinking, well, we're lost here now. There will not be an Atlantic Accord, and of course, all concerning who has jurisdiction and control and ownership of our offshore. But he advised the government. He wrote the documents. He, for all intents and purposes, led the negotiations, which were very tough. So even if you hear from Mr. Peckford himself and or Tom Rideout or Des Sullivan or Ron Penny or others that were in the room, Cabot Martin was the driver. Cabot Martin was the force that said, we're not going to buckle, we're not going to give up. And, of course, the Atlantic Accord came to bear. So our deepest condolences to his friends and family. I exchanged notes, for instance, with Con O'Brien over the weekend. And, of course, Con and Cabot established a, a really close relationship, as had many people through a variety of areas, law, geology, energy resources in full. Cabot Martin dead at 78. Our deepest condolences to his friends, and his family, he had a big impact. We're on Twitter. We're VOC Mobile Line. Follow us there. 
Our email address is openlineofvcm.com. Let's get a tune going. I don't know how you spent your Saturday, maybe in a provincial park or a national park or the park by the house, but in 1972, Chicago cracked the top ten with their notes on Saturday in the park. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to Ron Thomas. He's international rep for the United Steelworkers. We'll talk about what happened out the Briah Renewable Fuel. Come by chance. Uh, good morning, Ron. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Uh, doing good, doing good. A uh, bit of a tough weekend. Uh, we had, uh, I mean, uh, as everybody knows, we had that incident that happened there Friday uh, and sent eight workers on to the hospital. Uh, the biggest thing I wanted to talk about this morning, Patty, is that since the incident, I mean, the steel workers have been uh, there for the families and there for the workers. And on Saturday, we dispatched the emergency response team from the International, and they've been in here ever since. Uh, right now, they're set up at the uh, at the refinery itself, and they're set up at the Union Hall in uh, Arnold's Cove. So, if any of the workers or any of the family members, you know, just want to have a chat with them, uh, you know, just just to discuss what's going on, they're there for them. For what sort of application, like what are, what kind of supports will they offer? You say if someone just wants to talk, in what form? Are we talking about the trauma some people might be experiencing or feeling, or is it questions about what happened, or what are they there to do? Well, more about the trauma, Patty. I okay. mean, a lot of people witnessed it, and a lot of people were there when it happened. And, uh, you know, it's tough on the families, and it's tough for everyone around the area. And, you know, we're, we're there to lend a ear, and they, we got some professionals there that can help out, right? And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a quick thing. There's something that we do, like uh, the International does whenever there's an, an, a huge event or a huge uh, uh, situation like happened here at the refinery, and it's after helping a lot of people, right? So I just want to make sure that the listeners know that that's out there today because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, our thoughts and prayers, and I think everybody uh, feels the same way, are, are going to the workers right now and hoping for a speedy recovery. And we're there to make sure that, uh, make sure the workers are going to be treated right and make sure the family is taken care of. And uh, then finally, we got to make sure that uh, whatever happened, whatever the root cause of this, uh, of this explosion or fire, uh, we need to find out what it was and to make sure this don't happen again. Because there's already tons of rumors floating around, and that's less than helpful. Uh, what does an appropriate investigation look like if you were the architect of? Because representing the workers, you know, I'm not going to say that the folks who operate the facility don't have safety top of mind because they must. It has a huge implication on their own viability. So what, would it, what does an appropriate investigation look like? Well, I mean, I'm not an expert on investigation. we got the experts on, on it right now. Uh, we got some of our members from, uh, from the United Steelworkers there. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to check every scenario and find out why it happened. And uh, and like I said earlier, you know, the biggest thing for us is just to make sure that this don't happen again. Absolutely right. Um, so we, we know that there was eight people initially hospitalized. Two have been released. Do you happen to know or would you like to share what you know about the status of those who still remain in hospital? 
Well, I'd rather leave that alone okay. right now. We've been uh, we've been discussing with the family uh, on several occasions. I mean, there's some um, minor improvements, but they still got a, a long way to go, right? And uh, I, I mean, I'd leave that for the family to speak about. Uh, just the only thing I wanted to talk about was uh, mainly that we got the emergency response team there for anybody that needs to come out and talk about the situation. We had a lot of members that were involved with the rescue and involved with the situation work that day, or even they were co-workers or family members that are having a tough time dealing with it, right? So that's, that's our biggest thing right now. And, and that's important. I uh, really appreciate the update and the information this morning, Ron. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. It's Ron Thomas, international rep for the United Steelworkers. That's quite the, quite the scare. So many people got it. And even if you weren't in the facility at the time, you felt it. And same if you're working in another similar cycle, uh, set of uh, industrial circumstances, these things, you know, like I might have a certain level of concern about my workplace, but nothing like what so many of these men and women in places like the Briar Renewable Fuel Facility have. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Roz, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I want to talk about the strike today. Sure. Um, in Mount Pearl. Um, because of the pandemic and the eight weeks uh, strike on the go, there are uh, people... It's, you know, tempers were escalating, you know, and I think I have a solution uh, for both parties, really. Just call, call a meeting and with the 200 members and have the mayor and the six councillors attend a meeting. I'll go along, too. I'll go along as a witness and ask the public, ask the membership how many of them want to go to, back to work on the conditions of uh, these eight people being written up, because that seems like the only thing that's holding the strike up right now. Well, it seems to be. I mean, QP and their representative group at the city of Mount Pearl, the offer is pretty strong if you're looking at just numbers on a piece of paper. I do think it all, uh, it's all being hung up by the fact that so many, whether it be eight or 13, the numbers change all the time, that might be facing some discipline because of safety violations or what have you. But the union is unwilling to take it to the members for a vote, uh, which is, uh, I guess, their own. They, yes. they could take it to a vote and have a showing of hands instead of the secret ballot. And then you'll get the true reading of everything. Oh, I think you get a true reading even on a secret vote. Over no, not all the time, Patty. Oh, I don't not know. I'm not sure what time. you mean by that. But there's, yeah, this not has, all the time. But oh, if they had yeah. a showing of hands, and I'll, I'll go to the meeting with them. Okay. And, you know, and if the, if the mayor and them are not willing to go... I'll go and and watch the you know what happens. How many people did vote for it with the showing of hands? Because okay. the priority is these eight people, because of the pandemic and every and and being on strike, you got a tendency to do things uh, that you really normally don't do. And these people are going to be written up. I, like I said, I don't know all the circumstances. I'm only going by what I hear from the union and what I'm hearing from the mayor. Well, I never heard nothing from the mayor, but I heard it from a councillor. And they're, they're telling me, I, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about anyway. So, so I don't mind that. I don't mind that. But I will not mind going to a meeting. Okay, and even, even if all of them attends and they get the city, uh, the enforcement, the Mount Pearl Police Enforcement, if they got all of them to go uh, to protect the mayor and myself or whatever. Yeah, they only do traffic. But uh, yeah. anyway, I appreciate the thought and the time, Ross. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Uh, Penny, can I also comment on, on those injured workers? Sure. Yes. And my heart goes out to them. And I hope, 
I hope to God they don't have to go through the struggle that I went to as an injured worker. I hope they are going to be there for these workers. Because I'm telling you, once you're injured, uh, you've got nobody but yourself to fight. And unless it's changed a lot, uh, I went through hell with workers' comp, and I hope these people don't have to. Thanks for this, Ross. Take care. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in The Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Calvin, you're on the air. Is this pop there, Ponce? Calvin, line two, you're on the air. Yeah, good day. How are you doing, Paddy Daly? Doing great this morning, thanks. How are you doing? I'm calling you from St. Brides. Right on. And uh, I'm looking, uh, maybe you might be able to resolve a problem for me. I, uh, September 1, I picked up my Newfoundland and Labrador resident small game license. Okay. Okay. And the last states said wolf, coyote, rock termican, willow termican, snowshoe hare, arctic hare, rough grouse, spruce grouse, and squirrel and porcupine. Now, but then they went and told me. There's a return, and and there's uh, the other side of the license that got to go back to the Newfoundland and Labrador government, and this license is not valid for the shooting of termican. But why do it stay on the license that I have to pay $20 for the shoot the termican? And then what they told me were about the, uh, the license. They told me that that license was no good. I had to buy another license. Termican shooting license only. September 1 for to take Tarbigan by shooting. Why do I have to buy f- pay for two licenses to the Newfoundland government? I don't know, but there is a specific Willow and Rock Tarmigan license. That much I know for sure. Uh, and not everywhere has the same rules either. Like you can't snare one on Belle Island. I think it's already closed in Bjorn. So I know there's a standalone license for those birds. Yeah, well, well what I'm saying, I'll say small game license, Rock Tarmigan, Willow Tarmigan. Yeah. But then on the other side of that license, this license does not permit the shooting of ducks, geese, snipe, rock termican, and willow termican. Well, then why did I pay for $20 for that license if, if there's on one side that I bought the license and there's on the other side that I didn't buy the license? I don't know. So th- when you went to uh, apply or to buy the license, you told me that you only wanted it for the birds and you got something that wasn't the right one? Well, then, no, look, I have to set her down. Okay, this is my, my Calvin Foley, St. Brides, to take small game by shooting or snaring subject to the current regulations. For and on behalf of the Minister of Fisheries, for Forestry and Agriculture. Yeah. But I bought that license for the shoot to Tamarick and to go with me set her down. But then why did they tell me that I had still had to buy another license for the shoot termican? I don't know. I'm I had confused. to buy two licenses. Yeah, I'm confused well, about... That would be a good question for you, Paddy Daly, to call for and on behalf on the two licenses, for and on behalf of the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture. That would be a good question for you to, to contact them and put them on your line. Why did I have to buy two licenses for the, for what I'm, for what the I'm one animal? Shoot? Yeah, I can, I can try to figure that out for you, Calvin. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Uh, on the thing here, I, I, can, I, can, I, can you give me another minute? Sure, go ahead, Calvin. Okay. In accordance with the provisions 
at Chapter W8 of the Revised Statutes of Newfoundland and Labrador 1990 and the re- regulations here under his permission to, my name is on it, to take Tamrican by shooting. Uh, yeah, you said that but, first. Yeah. Okay, that's, I had to buy that one, but still, and the other licence that I had to buy, buy to take Tamrican by shooting too, I had to buy two licences. Yes, I heard that part, and that's a question I'll ask on your behalf, no problem. Will you get him on today then? Oh, I don't know if they're going to respond to me as quick as that, but I'll try to get him on. Because if, you're, if you have a confusion about the license, then you're not alone. So we'll see if we can't get someone on sooner than later. How's that? Uh, one to one Newfoundland and Labrador resident Tarbigan shooting license. Okay, there's an old on the back of it. Yes, no, you already said that part. Let me see yeah. if I can get uh, Derek Bragg on. I think he's the minister, right? Get, 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 get Mr. Bragg, Minister Bragg on then. See what I can do. And explain why that I had yes, to pay for, twice for two licenses for the shoot to say bird. That's exactly what we'll try to figure out for you. Okay, good enough. Thanks a lot, Calvin. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Line number four. Take you more to the new Secretary-Treasurer at the FFAW. That's Jason Spingle. Jason, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. And, uh, I think it was the first calling in from St. John's here, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I uh, just wanted to touch base with you this morning to, uh, you know, say hello to our membership across the province in my new capacity as Secretary-Treasurer. And, um, and uh, you know, I, uh, the uh, opportunity became available when uh, uh, Robert Keenan uh, resigned there a few weeks ago and uh, felt with 24 years of experience now in uh, all, basically all fa- uh, sectors of our union, the inshore, the industrial including fish and non-fish, uh, you know, experience with arbitrations, negotiations that, uh, and given where, you know, sat down with my family and as I, as I noted at, at our meeting there and felt it was a good time to um, uh, offer myself, uh, you know, on a broader scale to serve this membership in this uh, great organization of ours. So. so, Jason, who was able to vote for your position? Yeah, so our constitution, which is uh, which is established at our convention, triennial convention, um, and as any mandates or any uh, modifications are made there, but it's been in place that uh, I guess similar to uh, other leadership positions, whether it be political parties or what have you, that if someone resigns in term or leaves in term, I guess, is that the uh, elected leadership, volunteer leadership of the uh, organization would vote to replace those people. So it would be the executive board, the inshore council, and the industrial retail offshore council. So I think it was potentially over uh, over six, around 62 seats on those councils and executive board that uh, would make a choice. Now, we in 2024, it will be a full-term election, and if the, any, uh, any uh, elections at that point... Um, Will be de- uh, will be decided by the general membership of our organization. Will that include people who formerly signed a fish and nail card? Uh, yep, everyone will get a, every member will get an opportunity to vote. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Because that's been confusing. You know, when there was an ongoing battle for the membership, I kind of understood how the the line was drawn in the sand. But now that there's no such thing as fish and nail, it seems would be quite ridiculous to keep people who are willing to sign that card on the outside looking in at any opportunity to vote. So that's good news. I'm sure they'll be happy. Yeah, they will get an opportunity to vote. Okay. Runs. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, 
so yeah so the other thing that i wanted to talk about specifically i guess is uh i think uh, it's, it's well known out there uh this year is uh is the mackerel fishery and um and as you know the minister federal minister of fisheries under jurisdiction um closed the mackerel fishery this year against everyone's advice i mean i've been on the uh differing opinions of course uh, but I've been on the Atlantic Mackerel Advisory Committee along with our harvesters and our leadership for, for a number of years. And, you know, they closed the golf cart as well. And, well, just a quick point, that closing fisheries really disconnects uh, uh, harvesters uh, from the resource, and there's a significant then scientific component that's lost, right? Uh, I, I think a lot of people, including in science, don't feel that total closures. But in any case, I point out um, uh, some... Um, uh, specific uh, using Facebook and most people do some specific uh, individuals that people can reference and I've talked to those individuals they're happy for people to go on and look at their footage videos and pictures and I'll just uh, I'll just give the really quickly the names here so we have Austin Castle who's a harvester in Ingle, um, Albert Wells I'm not sure Albert is on Facebook but he's a longtime harvester in Wild Cove in the, in the heart of White Bay uh, Jamie Seymour is a harvester, mackerel harvester in Bayvert. And uh, Jamie and Austin have some uh, really incredible footage showing mackerel breaching on the surface. And and Trevor Jones, who I think you've uh, spoken with before. I've had Brad Wright out on. Uh, Brad Wright out. Well, Trevor and Brad have fished close side by side over the years. And, and Brad has been on as well, certainly very experienced. And, you know, I, I, I know all of these folks. And, you know, what we're seeing is an unprecedented, so when we, you know, sometimes fish you can't see. Like I've talked about redfish, well, they're in deep water. What we see is what we bring up in the nets. But mackerel are close to shore, and they have this uh, phenomenon of surface breaching. So all I can say is really quickly, so if you look at that area, and then you talk to people on the West Coast, they're getting mackerel. I was home uh, in the Labrador Straits just for um, uh, Labor Day weekend, and um my cousin was home with his son, and we could catch mackerel off the wharf. I haven't seen that in many, many, many years. I think the plant was producing fish at the time. But, but you know, this footage of uh, just large schools of mackerel breaching. So when we caught, you know, 20,000, 30,000 tons back in the early 2000s, we did not see, we did not see this type of uh, observations with mackerel. And so, you know, talking to harvesters, including the ones I referenced, are saying, uh, very, very, uh, I guess, bluntly, look, I've never seen this much mackerel at this time of year before. So what we need here is the minister to uh, change her decision, have some type of mackerel fishery to, uh, because it needs to be done, because it's definitely not, uh, not as uh, dire as science is making it out. And if we look at mackerel, if we look at the temperatures we're seeing and, and the change in weather impacts, the warming of the weather, the uh, Southern Gulf Egg Survey that they depended on for many years is just, you know, everyone feels the same way, whether they're from Newfoundland or the Maritimes. Mackerel are moving further north. They're as far as Charlottetown, Labrador. They're moving earlier. And we're seeing, you know, uh, this kind of phenomenon with uh, several species. Lobster is flourishing further north. And so, you know, the science is just really not caught up to the reality. So we're, we've asked the minister and DFO for a meeting, but either way, uh, the minister needs to change her mind. You know, you hear people say, final point for me is, well, the minister, very difficult for a minister to change her decision. But that doesn't mean that, I, you know, people, uh, information changes. If you look at 
uh, something like Macrolix says, highly migratory. There's absolutely no reason uh, why this would uh, this can't be done, and we're asking the minister to take a serious look at this right now. So it's a significant last opportunity for the fishery and the science as well going forward. And, you know, given the fact that they do seem to be flourishing further north, add to it that the United States on the eastern seaboard, there's long been a mirrored quota. So whatever we were fishing in Atlantic Canada, the Americans on the eastern seaboard were fishing the exact same tonnage. They continue to catch on a moratorium here. It just doesn't really make any sense, especially if you add to the fact that they may be even pushing further north and the Americans continue to fish the species. It's not only for commercial export and for food, it's bait. So it's had implications across the board. I appreciate the time, Jason. Thanks for this. Excellent point, Patty, and I really appreciate you bringing that up. And finally, like I said, uh, uh, to the workers that come by chance and their families, just wishing them uh, a speedy re- and full recovery. And like um, as Ron said, uh, you know, hopefully that uh, the, uh, well, the, the the elements will be put in place so we don't see an accident like this again. So, here, here. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much. Bye, bye, Jason Spingle. Is the new Secretary Treasurer at the FAW. Quickly for Calvin and others, this is from a good friend of mine who's a, an experienced hunter. He says, this is the first year that you had to buy two small game licenses in order to snare or shoot rabbits and partridge or grouse. He's calling it just another cash grab. Let's take a break. When we come back, Pat's in the queue to talk about the fixed link. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's see, line number three. Pat, you're on the air. Hello, Pat. Hi there. Yeah, I'm calling uh, because I heard on your preamble that you said a provincial minister and a federal minister were in Norway and they were uh, looking at tunnels. Well, I don't know exactly who was there from uh, representing the province, but uh, Minister Seamus O'Regan was in Norway. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good to hear. That's that's good news uh, because, you know, it's an important role of government to uh, establish infrastructure for a community or a province uh, that will allow uh, the province to flourish, you know. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I would like to uh, call out to the, to the province uh, to um, let us know uh, what they're doing. Uh, to uh, to uh, on this project, you know, the tunnel across the Strait of Belle Isle. Well, I think at this moment in time, the province would be very quick to say that the federal government might view this as a nation-building project, and consequently with the Canada Infrastructure Bank, is where this project currently yeah. is, that they're going to do yeah. a lot of deferring, I would imagine, to the feds on this one. Um, but just in, as yeah. a question, how do you see this as allowing the province to flourish economically. For a lot of people, there would be a distinct benefit to those 25,000 people living in Labrador for access to the rest of the province. That's indisputable. But how do you see it as a big economic driver? Uh, Yeah, well, um, it's going to be another major transportation route into the province. And, uh, like, with a a highway, a Trans-Canada highway, standard highway, along the north shore of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, that's what we need in conjunction with this tunnel uh, to provide a, a huge economic boost to the province. Yeah, I just think, um, you know, some of the questions that people will mm-hmm. ask is, you know, the references are always made to the Confederation Bridge, and just how 
accessible it would be to how many Canadians within, we'll say, a three or four hour drive. I think there's questions there. No doubt it would uh, enhance our food security and reliability of the supply chain. You never know how long Marine Atlantic or Ocean X could possibly be shut down because of adverse weather. So I think there's part of the argument. Uh, there's never going to be an opportunity for both ferries to go away. There's always going to need to be Marine Atlantic service. There's always going to need to be the Labrador Ferry Service. But there's it, it's a good conversation to be had. What I think gets left out, because we can talk about the cost and the opportunity for the technology, which is obviously available to be able to build these types of undersea tunnels, is what it means for the road work on the other side. And I know people always think that I'm just trying to um, paint this in a negative light, but this is part of the reality if and when this is ever done, and if and when people are going to travel it to the volume that's suggested. The Quebec partnership to complete that route, and then most importantly for this province, is we would have to do some serious updating to the highway system on the Great Northern Peninsula, like serious updates oh, yeah. and upgrades. Yes. And that will not be cheap. Not to say that it's you know probably a good thing no matter how you slice it, but that would yeah. have to be done. Oh, yes. Yeah, and that would all be part of the project. Um, and you mentioned that the Labrador Ferry would always have to be there. Well, it wouldn't have to be there uh, once the tunnel is built because uh, that would be uh, that would eliminate the Labrador Ferry. Well, it depends it on whether or not you can transport every single dangerous good in the tunnel. And there are restrictions on some of the Norway tunnels, so that's, that's the lone question that I would put out there for the requirement oh. for a ferry service, because I'm not so sure that every single thing that would come in and out of Labrador can go through the tunnel. Now, if I'm wrong, well, someone can point, point it out, and I'm happy to correct myself. But I think there's a dangerous okay. good uh, implication. Yeah, okay. Well, um, in that case, you might, you might need a, a dangerous good to be a, transported uh, by, by boat or by ferry. Uh, but uh, for all intents and purposes, the, the ferry is eliminated, and uh, this province uh, is, is subsidizing that ferry. And that should be our contribution to the tunnel, to, to uh, the tunnel annual payment every year uh, as to what we are paying now in the subsidy. We should continue that payment uh, to pay off the tunnel, and, and uh, the tunnel should not cost this province any new money. Um, the uh, Quebec uh, uh, ferry would be eliminated, the one that goes along the North Shore. And uh, they can contribute that amount towards the the, pro the the project, which will be the construction of the highway. And the project would also include highway improvements on the northern peninsula from Deer Lake. Um, and the federal government would would contribute uh, the payment, the the balance of the payment, the annual payment. Um, and and of course they will look at. Uh, this is another major transportation route into the province. It's coming directly from Quebec City, which is approximately a 13-hour drive to the tunnel from Quebec City. Right. Uh, I don't know what so the feds would do. <clears throat> There's lots of things they could do. What they end up doing, yeah. if this ever yeah. moves yeah. past the yeah. you know viability yeah. stage, will remains to be seen, yeah. as far as I know. Anyway. Yeah, I think the feds are looking at this as, as a way to save money on the ferry. Uh, they are contributing a huge amount every year to keep the Marine Atlantic Ferry operating. And uh, the last study showed that 60% of the traffic would, would use the tunnel. Uh, so in that case, obviously, the, uh, the ferry subsidy would be reduced, and they can contribute that money annually to the payment. And once it's paid off in 30 or 35 years, 
then all governments are in money. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but, you know, just for clarification, the cost recovery model at Marine Atlantic, the line share is because of usership, not because of the federal government. 65% of the cost yeah. of Marine Atlantic has to be recovered through, through fee and fares. So that's, oh, yes, that's a whopping yes, big number. But if you look at the Marine Atlantic reports, um, the, uh, there's over $100 million a year going in from the federal government just to cover operational costs of the ferry system. Uh, so uh, that's where the federal government will will save money, if if uh, the traffic um, is go- goes to the tunnel, if sixty percent of the traffic goes to the tunnel, you know, the, I think the feds are looking at at uh, reduce uh, reducing their subsidy uh, on the ferry system, you know, uh, but of course the ferry system will have to operate. Marine Atlantic will have to operate. So uh, mm-hmm. whatever the demand there is, they will have to satisfy it on that ferry. Uh, the whole recovery, cost recovery scheme at Marine Atlantic needs to be revisited, period. Uh, Pat, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for this. Uh, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Shirley's in the queue, wants to talk about health care, and then there's lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Shirley. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling concerning health care, as you know, but... I noticed now this weekend YK John is closed again until Wednesday. They said on news Tuesday, but as my information is, it was Wednesday. The doctor will be back. That's out in New West Valley, is it? New West Valley, yes, sir. Okay. Now, I was in that hospital for four, nearly four months the winter, and they needed roller skates on. All the while, from the morning they came in to the night they left. They had no days off, no lunch breaks, or no afternoon breaks. Now, I can't say one bad word about no people out there, only one. I had the best of care from all, except that one person who was in the wrong position. That's for another day. But you know, you would think when we have a doctor premier, he might be only part-time, but of course he do know the condition of health care, especially when he is, especially when he is a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering now, would he consider stepping down, him and Siobhan Cody, both of them, and give the job to someone else who knows more about health care and is going to do something for the senior citizens and the people of Newfoundland. I wonder what we would get for a doctor to step down. Like, I would imagine he knows a fair bit about health care, like uh, John Hattie did. He's covering what up? I'm sorry? He's covering up the, the state of health care. I mean, I moved things back to St. John's on, in April. And I've been in hospital four times since I've been here. And now I'm a woman who got only part of my heart function, left side of my heart is not functioning. I have one kidney, and that's not in very good condition. 
not functioning well. I've been down to the hospital and they had to stay 10 and 12 hours to wait to see a doctor. You know, it's all terrible, Charlie. We get that. But uh, what do you mean by the government or the premiers covering it up? Because, like you mentioned, the... Uh, uh, the Dr. Y.K. Jean Kittyway Healthcare Centre in New West Valley. There was eight emergency rooms cover, uh, closed for different amounts of time over the weekend. We yes, talk about it all right. the time. We know the numbers. So who and how is anybody covering something up? The reason it's covered up is because they're saying they can't get doctors. There's more to it than money, the reason they're not getting doctors. If the government was... a cooperating with the doctors there would be it would be more service better service you would, nobody can expect a doctor with a family to be in there and i know this for a fact there was one doctor who left brookville now i think it was last of july he he worked 28 days and nights and never had an hour off the man was run off his feet we have our other doctor there, Dr. Kiriakis, who was away now. He'll be back on Wednesday. A good doctor, but I don't know how long he's going to be able to stay. They're tr what they're trying to do is close out the uh, hospitals and join everything in with the big hospitals. They're not considering the people. If they were considering the people, especially not everybody got a car, not everybody can afford a ambulance every time they move. So, I mean, that's one hospital they should never ever door, door close. I mean, when I was there, I was there four months, I was very sick. But how many other people had to go to other places because there was no doctor? A lot. And, and the doctor couldn't, no, he was run ragged, he couldn't do anything. The nurses, everyone there except one person did their job from the floor, people who cleaned the floor, to the cooks, to the housekeepers, everyone. And when God dropped the angels off to Ban News, uh, YK John, he knew what he was doing because, my son, I guarantee you, I was nursing for myself for 50 years. And it's a lot worse now when I went to work in the 60s. You're not wrong when you say that if there was a better relationship between the government and, more specifically, between the regional health authorities and the different health care workers, we might have a different set of circumstances. Because people talk about it all the time because I think you're also right when you say it's not just about money. And that's what makes it so no. difficult to, you know, get it's a health care professional. At the, okay, I'll, leave, I'll let you have the last word, Shirley. Go ahead. Well, anyway, I want to say that all the best of luck to the wonderful staff at YK John and try and keep your patience and like you've always done. And time to take the roller skates off and let the government stand up to their responsibility towards you, not use you as slaves. Appreciate this, Shirley. Hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm a first-time caller, by the way. Well, you're always welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Shirley. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's keep rolling. Line number two. Will, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Okay. How you doing? Not too bad. I'm a long-time uh, listener on my drives in the end in the mornings in the school, but I've never actually called in. This is the first for me, but uh, I just wanted to speak about the uh, small game licenses there and the separate now license, of course, for Ptarmigan. Yep. So, uh, 
I think I'm going to kind of offer a different perspective. I know everyone immediately jumps to the conclusion that it's a cash grab, and I'm not saying that's not the case. It very well could be. But I think they are also possibly trying to take a little bit of pressure off the hunting of partridge because we all know that that's, you know, a resource. It's very popular. It's pursued by so many people around the province. But yet, you know, there are a lot of issues. And, you know, you've been hearing about it for years now where there's been issues with the population. Now, I know last year there was pretty good hunting and, you heard a lot about, you know, good numbers and all that, but it does kind of go in cycles. And I just think you're not, you know, there's a lot of pressure on that bird population. And I think creating a separate license may kind of take a little bit of pressure off that perhaps. Could they, if that was their motivation, could they not just limit the number of licenses out the door? I, you know, I've thought about that before, but I think, you know, that would have said like, like they do with moose. I mean, similar to a lottery, I guess. I guess so. I, I'm just thinking out loud because if it's yeah. if it's all about protecting the population of Tarmigan in this case, then fewer licenses or change bag limit numbers because I think bag limit is what six six bag limit, twelve possession, I believe, for that bird. It uh, it actually varies depending on where you are on the province. Oh, okay. So you have like so, Bjorn Peninsula, for example, is one area. You have remainder of island is another one, and you know you have these boundaries that are clearly defined in the maps, but obviously it's a bit hard to figure it out to some degree, but. Generally, most of the province is 6 and 12. Now, I, I did hear, and I wouldn't, you know, I would say absolutely verify this. Don't take what I'm saying as gospel. But I had heard that the bag limit for rock ptarmigan, which is, of course, the separate species from the willow, actually dropped to three bag limit, six possession, because they're a bit concerned with the numbers there for rock ptarmigan. Okay, well, that's something I can figure out, uh, yeah. the specific numbers. And you're right, the maps are really quite clear, whether we're talking... Uh, hares or grouse or ptarmigan or whatever else. So yeah. and what if it's all about protecting the species, then I know that it appears. Like if you're out in Placentia Bay hunting for the murs, the common tur, it looks sure, like they're yeah. endless. But, I mean, at some point, a 40 bag limit just is, you know, all it does is appease hunters who are enthusiasts as opposed to food. So I, I think we've got ourselves an interesting conversation about bag limits. And that, yeah, that's exactly my concern, Patty, is you do have this, like, people will go out, and, you know, you see photos, let's say, from a goose hunt, where people are posing with about 50 snow geese or 50 Canada geese there in the photo. And, you know, I, I know some people may eat all of that meat. I know some will, but a lot of that, I'm sure, does go to waste. You fill your deep freeze and you forget about it, you know, and I think that's a serious problem. Like, if I go partridge hunting, let's say you get four or five birds, that's enough, right? You make a pot of soup, you, you cook them, you do whatever you want, but... You don't really need much more than that. And if you do need a few more, go out on another hunt. You know, it's not like a lot of people who hunt are not necessarily hunting for that filling the freezer anymore. And I know that's the case for moose, but it isn't for a lot of things. It's for the enjoyment of the hunt, right? A hundred percent. And I'm not suggesting, nor are you, that that's the most common practice. But I know one no. person in particular who is a friend of mine, and he hunts for the fun of the hunt. He will yeah. absolutely fill the freezer and come the next hunting season, he will try to give some of it away or just throw it away because he had never intended to keep all those birds to eat in the first place. So I always kind of roll my eyes at him, but he tells me it's none of my business. And that's how he hunts. He fills the bag limit every time. And I mean, I know, I know people can do that, but like, of course, I think a lot of people would say, you shouldn't be doing that. Of course not, because, you know, it's, a, it's an animal. You're going to shoot it. You should eat it. Absolutely. But uh, just one other thing I wanted to mention there before I... Uh, let you go is um, the issue actually now as well with the partridge population being so heavily hunted. You know, all the roads that were built for Muskrat Falls opening up huge swaths of the country, right? Such as on the Bjorn Peninsula, the Transmission Line Road, and a number of other different access roads into the country. They have opened up country that was previously 
very inaccessible. And now it's like very easy to get in there. And I'll just my own personal example here is I hunt a lot of the Buren Peninsula for partridge. And that road you used to have to hike in, you know. We have a small cabin about 20 kilometers from the Buren Peninsula Highway. It used to be a long hike. Now it's only 10K, but that road is so heavily hunted now. And you're really noticing the partridge numbers are starting to dwindle on that road. Nothing like it was before. And that's kind of a provincial issue, I think, with these new access roads. Well, it stands to reason. You make it more accessible, more and more people will use it, and consequently more and more animals will be taken. It just all works hand in glove. Uh, Will, first-time caller, really appreciate that. Thanks for this. No problem. Thanks a lot, Patty. Uh, great listening to the program, and you have a great day now. You too, pal. All the best. See you later. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, there we go. First-time callers back-to-back. Love that. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Lindy's in the queue to talk about $500. What $500? We'll all find out after this. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line one, Lindy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hiya. How's it going? Not too bad, I suppose. How you doing? Not too bad, sir. This early in the morning. <laughs> 10.23. My God, it's not that early anymore. No, but I'm a senior. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm, I'm calling about this uh, $500 uh, uh, whatever you might call it, that we're supposed to get from the provincial government. One-time payment. For what? For fuel, I suppose, whatever. That they announced, oh, a long time ago, anyway. So this is not about uh, old age security or anything? This is a provincial no, number? No, 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 no. This is a one-time payment, and you have to apply for it. And this is September. It's for, it's for people burning oil or whatever. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, but uh, I was wondering if you had heard anything on it because there hasn't been any announcement or anything on it. This is September going into October, so. Yeah, I'm just trying to find an email that I got about it. One second. Um, I'm heating. Fuel. Right. So there's so many one-timers out there that I kind of forgot about some of it. Supplement the cost of furnace oil use. Looks like so. The email I got from the government a week ago was that this should all be open in, it said two weeks. That was a week ago. So the application will be available in about a week. Uh, I'm just taking a guess based on the information that I was given like eight days ago. Very good. Yeah. So just so people know what's going on here, because not everybody uh, qualifies. No, uh, I think you got to be 75 or something, don't you? No, that was the old age security, $500. And you're right, you had to be 75 or older. You got a one-time check, and that was last August. And then you got a 10% increase. So, here we go. Uh, one-time payment will be provided to supplement the cost of furnace oil used for home heating. This supplement will be income test based on net family income. Households with net family income under one, uh, pardon me, under $100,000 will receive a payment of $500. Households with family net income between $100,000 and $150,000 will reach a partial payment of between $200 and $500, based on, of course, the exact amount of net family income. So this is across the board, not only for seniors. Okay. Yeah. Fine. And uh, one more thing. Sure. How do you get Jerry Bird's office? Answer. Oh, I don't know. Because I've called, I've, over the summer, I say I've called at least 10 times. And I don't even get a return call. What's the issue that you're calling about? Curious. 
Well, what what are, what is that one? Okay. That's one. The others the others now are are, are personal. Are, that's fine. Yeah, they're not, they're not on mine right now. But like I said, if, if you call, you should you know at least get a return. They, they say leave your number. We'll we we'll return your call. Never. Well, even if you don't get what you want to hear, a return call should be something that anybody's member can offer to their constituents, for sure. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's doctors, you know, uh, 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 the new hospital, all this stuff. But, uh, no, never never got a sound. Well, hopefully you get a call back, and hopefully that information on the $500 was helpful. Thank you, sir. Anytime, Lindy. All oh, the best. No, I know. I've got it all arranged with Eddie Joyce's office with the... Uh, the application. Okay. Because uh, yeah, I had no problem with Eddie Joyce whatsoever. Good enough. Yes, sir. We'll send it out to you in the mail. Thanks. So I thank you, sir. Anytime, Lindy. Talk Have again soon. Have a good soon. day. You too. Bye-bye. You too. Yep. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going. Line number three. Terry, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Okay. How are you doing, Terry? Good. Uh, I'm just calling this morning. I won't keep you very long, but we're doing recruitment for 2515 St. John's Army Cadet Corps in St. John's. Okay. Uh, we're starting our parade tomorrow night at 6.30 to around 9. Sometimes we end a bit early, sometimes it's a bit late. Um, 115 the Boulevard, that's the Lieutenant Commander Anthony Padden building across from Kitty Vitty. Um, you have to be 12 to 18 years old for youth. Uh, as you can expect with COVID and stuff, things have slowed down over the last few years. But we're starting back up again, so we're eager to get some training on the go for our youth. Um, we're going to be offering a lot of uh, events such as sports nights, trips, field training exercises. We recently uh, got our band up and running again, so if you're interested in music, then we certainly welcome you there. Uh, as well as summer camps and stuff, you know, it's a great organization for kids, so we'd love to see uh, Anyone 12 years old, 18 years old who are looking for something to do, you might be new to the area, you might have moved back to the province, uh, we certainly welcome everyone. So I have a bit of contact info if it's okay. Can I release a number over there? Sure. Before we get to that, make the pitch. Yep. Why would I want to be a cadet? Like, for instance, does it come with, I know you can do some uh, field training, adventure training, first aid, music, and other things like that. But, for instance, does it come with some high school credits uh, for volunteer hours? Or make the pitch. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was a cadet in 1996. This is 26 years I've been with them. Um, when I graduated high school, I got a $1,000 scholarship. You're certainly in the running if your marks are good. They kind of sit down on a panel, oversees most of that stuff. But I mean, the perks are incredible. You know, A, it keeps you off the streets from all the trouble that's going on out there because we know that that's been a concern over the last few years for sure. But I mean, um, I mean, the opportunities cadets have to travel is just incredible. And it's free. I mean, who doesn't like free stuff, you know? And parents, that's not going to cost you anything. You get a free uniform. Plus, you're giving back to your community, you know? We do things like poppy campaigns, um, as you're aware, um, parades, Christmas parades. You'll always see the cadets down there doing their thing. But, you know, once you get as a senior cadet, you, you have a lot of opportunity to kind of get yourself out there and make some money at it, too, you know? 16-year-old, you're allowed to work. So a lot of these uh, cadets at 16 go away and make a bit of money for themselves, which certainly relieves a little stress off uh, the parents' backs, for sure. <laughs> There's obviously uh, a distinct physical component to being a cadet, too. So while I'm talking about things like the physical tax credit and you know trying to get involved in organized physical activities, with the cadets for free, it comes as part of the package. That's right. It is free, yeah. 
Absolutely. It's not going to cost you anything. We're nonprofits. So most, most of what we do is give back to communities. So one of our aims of the cadet movement is physical fitness. Um, but we also do community activities as well as promote the aims of Canadian Armed Forces, which a lot of our cadets end up, uh, once they age out, continuing their careers in the forces. And that most of them have very successful careers because of their experience already, right? So is recruitment down in numbers with cadets because we know the Canadian military are working hard but not coming up with the numbers they need to recruit either? Um, the, the young cadets, a, a lot of the recruitment has kind of been on a standstill since COVID. So we haven't done a lot, to be honest with you, in the last few years. But with COVID restrictions starting to settle on down, we're starting to see uh, our training centres open up a bit. We certainly have lost a few numbers since COVID. Um, of course, because you're not able to do much, really. So it hasn't been really entertaining the kids enough. But, I mean, I assure you that our training officers on board, between us all, we have 200 years' experience or more. Um, and certainly we have a great training schedule plan to get us back out there and continue on, you know. So a lot of these youths will see things start to happen, and it's rolling out pretty quick. So I'd love to see as many as we can get on Wednesday night. Uh, let's good luck with it. So give whatever contact info you'd like to share, Terry. Sure. Any parents who are interested uh, or want more info, they can contact us at 709-219-0574. We also have a website, www.2515stjohnsarmy.ca. As well, if you're looking for info through email, you can email us at 2515army at cadets.gc.ca and again you have to be 12 to 18 years old and once you age out we can discuss that further at a later date good luck with this terry thanks for your time no problem thank you so much for getting me on my pleasure all the best you take care thank you, you. too all right there you go if you have someone in your world who'd like to join the cadets and understands the upside of there's your chance let's take a break when we come back helen's there to talk about healthcare as well and then we're speaking with you don't go away Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line two. Uh, Helen, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Okay, you? Good. Uh, my name is Helen, and um, I'm going to start right from the... Last year in October, I had a stroke, two strokes, and I had an aneurysm. So I got a pain in my leg uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I've been trying to get in and get a um, CT scan or whatever, see if there's any blood clots or anything there. So my son took me over on Friday around 11.30. I got there, and I got registered in the waiting room uh, for... 45 minutes, no one else came into registered. Then they, you know, coming in about six people came in after, after I was there about 40 minutes. No one called me into emergency. And in the waiting room, a lady came in, sick, in the, and she took a garbage can, put between her legs, and she's there throwing up. And there's a lady over on the other side of the hospital uh, with a bar bag in her hand, throwing up. And then a lady, I went outside, and there was a lady out there fell down on the parking lot. Two paramedics went out and picked her up. When I came back inside, we had that lady in the emergency room in Grand Falls um, uh, crying to 
beat the band. And I said, are you registered? And she said, they took my NCP card. She said, I don't know what they're doing with it. So she said, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to do. She got me so much pain. So like, I took myself, my son and, and myself, we came home after about two hours there waiting. So there's a, another lady came in after I went there. She went in with her, her son. He was um, eight or nine years old. Came in with his iPad and his phone and everything. Came back to play while he's there waiting. And she said, what's wrong with your son? He said, she said, he got a rash on his stomach. So when there's a, a opening for somebody going, who did you think she called in there? Not me. Not the one that's thrown up. Not the one that's over there thrown up. But the one with the rash on his stomach. And then they tell you, go in there and put your mask on and keep it up over your nose. So what is the, you know, what are you doing there? Well, I don't know about the, the, the triage approach by that particular nurse. I, I mean, I'm really not so, not so sure to say what, uh, what to say about that. One thing, the person who said well, it's only because of a rash might not have actually told you exactly what the medical issue is. So I'd throw that into the mix. And, you know, someone took the MCP card. That's one place, boy, over at the hospital is a surefire way to have your personal information jeopardized, isn't it? You know, your social insurance number, your MCP number, people bawling them out and cards being left on counters and stuff. I'd always yeah. be a little bit more careful there. But with the triage issue, I'm really not so sure what to say. Who knows what the real medical concern was, whether or not they, that lady or the mom, I think you said it was the mother, wanted to tell you exactly what was going on. But I, I can't speak to triage. I, I just don't know. But anyway, uh, Patty, mm-hmm. like you go in there with a broken arm and I go in there with a broken leg. They know what's wrong with you. Send you back, get your cast on, and enter the hospital. There's no need to keep you in that hospital five to six hours because you've got a broken arm or a broken leg. Why don't they do that and, and, and try, you know, somebody got to do something about the medical care right there. It's certainly a lot of big questions being asked, and I understand that. I guess there's always going to be a delay. Like, for instance, even if I need stitches, you know, where does that rank in the triage priority list? If I need to have an X-ray and potentially to get a, a cast put on, where does that rank in the priority, given the who knows what sort of ailments are being suffered by the folks sitting in the waiting room? I mean, last time I went, it was an extremely long experience as well, and Helen, I think a lot of people feel the same way about what happens when they present at an emergency room. And how are you? You doing okay now? Yes, I'm doing okay. But, okay. you know, you uh, you get the few. Uh, I had a few nice people. Bob Allen down Harbor Britain. He was nice to me, and he talked to me, and he done everything. And I got a, a lady, uh, Ada Roberts, and I will mention their names over, over mine. I mean, they did help me, and, uh, they, and they will help. But, look, you got bad doctors out there. You got bad nurses out there. So when I said to the nurse, I said, uh, it was a nice day the other day. Yes, she said, I'd rather be out to picking berries than being here today doing this. So, you know, see, that is wrong. It's not good, yeah, because if you're on uh, on the payroll and you're on the clock, then we'd all, you know, would likely prefer to be doing something more fun than working, but the fact remains... If that's what you're doing, you're working, then get at it. Uh, Helen, thanks for the call this morning. I'm glad you're doing okay. Yeah. All the best. Okay, take care. All righty. Bye-bye.
Boing. Uh, let's keep going. Line number four. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I wanted to add something to Terry's comments about the cadets. Whenever I see a resume with, with cadets on there, I, I move it to the top. They're, they're in better shape. Their discipline is, is excellent. Their work ethic is much higher. And they have an innate, they've been taught how to lead. And it's amazing how you'll, you'll see that cadet training come out in the, on, the, on the job. So just another good reason to get involved with the cadet organization. How do, you treat, how do you treat a CV when you see the Edinburgh on it? <laughs> well, I don't see very many. I have seen a couple. You know, I, I start them kind of younger a lot of times. No, it's good. Edinburgh, obviously, that's that, that again, is of the same caliber. They've really got to work hard to get, to get that Duke of Edinburgh. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Says a lot about someone. I, I wanted to share. My wife and I are down in beautiful Trinity. We, we took off uh, yesterday morning. It's been a really long, tough summer. I know a lot of people who work in hospitality can relate to that. But we're on a little bit of a road trip, and uh, and driving the electric car. So I just thought I'd share a little bit of that with with people. So the, my car has a very short range compared to all the new cars now. But we stopped in Whitburn, got a little boost, and I, it, was, it was it was funny. I took a picture of my car charging and. Uh, the long, long, long lineup into Tim Hortons, and before, well, before I was finished, when, by the time I was finished, there was people who were at the beginning of the line just getting their coffee. So it doesn't take that long to get a little boost. Got over to Gooby's for a longer top up because we needed to get down here to Trinity, and um, someone had flicked off the power to the uh, to the charging station. There was just a big handle, just in case of emergencies. And I called the one of the Irving. They knew nothing about it. I called the charge point people who administered. They knew nothing about it, but flicked it back on and. When it booted up, it was it was working again. So just to let people know, not to be fooling around with those stations, because I'm sure, you know, I was I was I didn't know what I was going to do if I couldn't get that charge. I was it was going to I was going to have to go back to Whitburn. But anyway, just to let people know, not to be uh, fooling around with those with those charging stations. For those of us who need them, it's kind of like pulling the power to the Irving there in Whitburn. Yeah, you never know what people are willing to go at. What kind of foolishness. Uh, hijinks or shenanigans so yeah probably good idea to leave those things alone in full period absolutely uh so tom is this part of a uh wedding anniversary trip <laughs> man facebook's just it's a very very revealing thing it is yeah it's her it's my it's bev has put up this with me for 18 years she's she there's a special place in heaven for her for a lot of reasons but that's probably the biggest one yeah happy anniversary thank you very much i appreciate that i want to bounce over i i worked the weekend and i was i was doing an event and and there was a retired teacher there, and I said, you know, thank you very much. I said, I, said, I don't know who's gonna, I don't know who's gonna look after all the kids and stuff. She said, I don't care. I thought, and I thought to myself, wow, that just came out really, really fast. And I, you know, I was reflecting on all, you know, eight emergency rooms closed over the weekend, and I, and and I was speaking to another person who worked in the healthcare and was a little indignant that a doctor had texted them while they were on on their day off, and I just kind of reflecting upon whether or not whether or not we've really lost that public service uh mentality you know that we need to have and you know and then i thinking about how you know the rumor mill is that the provincial government employees are going to get an 11 percent raise kind of mimicking the city of st john's ones there's nothing out yet but i mean i'm thinking that that should all be signed sealed and delivered now i mean the last collective agreement with the nurses probably or maybe the ferry captains in september but the nurses would be july qp nape would have been april um <clears throat> so you know i just to let everybody realize, you know, that'll be that'll cost us an extra three hundred and eighty million dollars a year. And, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The PBO has said that we're on track to triple our debt by nineteen by twenty forty six. And they're saying we need to cut our spending by one point two billion. 
And then if you look at uh, the finances of the nation, which is an independent group, so full of really talented academics trying to just give put out data, they're saying we need to reduce it by 2.4 billion. That would be a 27.8% reduction. So I don't know how you, I don't know how you have a sustainable province uh, without really taking a hard look at these realities. Because every raise we get, just to keep reminding everybody, a when when our when our unionized public servants get a raise, it goes right up to the managers. Every penny is borrowed, and you know, the Mount Pearl laid it out pretty clearly there last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, when they said that you know their revenues are dropping in the in the city of Mount Pearl, and somehow they're finagling a nine percent raise, which ultimately just to the residents means your taxes are going up. Uh, so you know, I just pause and, and reflect upon if nobody cares and if everybody's going to just retire because they can, and 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 reminding everybody when they retire they get they get 70% of their best five years, assuming that they work their full tenure. And that's the best five years. They could make $20,000 a year for 25 years and then get a raise and make $100,000 for the last five. And, and they'll get, uh, get $70,000 a year as, as a pension. And all this stuff matters. And, and nobody wants to talk about it. And everybody just wants more and more and more. But we all need to collectively wrap our heads around what all that means, where we're going. Yeah, okay. Uh, just before we run out of time, give us an idea yeah. how much it costs to operate your electric vehicle in and out of Trinity. Okay, well, I charged here at the at the at the hotel bed and breakfast I'm staying in. Um, I spent eight dollars in Goobies and I spent three dollars in Whitburn, so eleven dollars to get to Trinity. And now, this will, what I'm getting what I'm charging down here is free, obviously built in the hotel. Not that it would cost a lot anyway. I'd probably probably put two dollars worth of electricity into it at the hotel. Um, we'll be staying at a cabin in Bonavista. Really looking forward to getting to Bonavista, and so that won't cost anything. So I'll I'll have to get back to Goobies. Probably put another eight dollars in. Probably another three dollars. So I'd say eleven dollars each way. Twenty-two dollars back and forth to Bonavista, Bonavista Peninsula. Appreciate the time this morning, Tom. Thanks a lot. Take care, everyone. You too. Stay safe. Alrighty, bye bye. Uh, and very quickly, uh, Jeanette makes an excellent point when we talk about triaging patients uh, to present at the emergency room. It might not always be solely based on what condition you are talking about, why you went to the emergency room. It might also be what kind of healthcare professional you need to see, whether you can go in and see the nurse practitioner or you need to see a doctor or you need to see a registered nurse or whatever the case may be. So that's an excellent point that factors into triage. Let's take a break. When we come back, Gary wants to talk about gas mileage. All right, then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in The Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just before we get to Gary, let's go to line number four, say good morning to the president of Memorial University. That's Dr. Vian Timmons. Dr. Timmons, you're on the air. Hello. How are you today? Pat? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm great. I'm great because it's a fabulous year with the students back on campus. Back on campus, including one of mine this morning. So that's the good news. So it's hard to know where to start, but let me go with this. I've been thinking and wondering how it's been looking for the K-12 system throughout the pandemic and preparedness to move on from kindergarten to one to three to four, six to seven. You know the deal. What specifically is happening at Memorial University to understand where the recent grads are from grades well, where they are, and to speak to them where they are, any additional supports they may need. So there's been a lot of work be- being done in this area. Um, our student services does frequent uh, surveys, checking in with students. We have MUN 101, which is a program that provides 
supports for students when the first coming. And we also did, Patty, if you remember, the Kickstart program for grade 12 students to help orient them to campus in the spring so they could take one credit course, and we had great registration in that. So all, all of our um, student services programs now are also virtual, so they really can wrap around the student. And I'm trying to figure out the proper way to ask this question, and it's not to say that there's anything happening at Memorial University, but if I'm the parent, especially if my son or daughter is traveling away from my home, away from my hometown, into St. John's to go to Memorial University, and they hear and see stories from around the country. For instance, what happened at the Dalhousie Dental School a few years ago, and what happened at Western University last year? There was a death during Frosh Week. There was allegations of sexual assault. How do you and your leadership team create a safe environment for all students at all ages and levels, because these stories will inevitably seep into the mind of the student and their families? That's a great question. Patty, we have now a program that all students are asked to take on um, consent and on uh, sexual harassment processes on campus. So um, how, to, how to make sure that you give consent, how to, to report it if you haven't, and there has been an incident the supports that are available for you. So it's an online program, and we're asking every student to take it. How, does it work like it's anonymous? Do I get uh, connected with one person in particular? How can people know? Because we also have a complicated issue in society with willingness and want to come forward, for, you know, fear of retribution and people knowing and the stigma associated with So how does it work specifically? So it is anonymous. We have an office specifically staffed uh, to support students um, in this area. So we have staffing we've put in place. We have uh, processes. We have, um, once an allegation is made, we have an investigation process that is laid out, and the student is well aware of that, but it is anonymous, and we do protect the student. And this is important, Patty. My youngest daughter was sexually assaulted on a university campus. This is very close to my heart, and it is something that I want to make sure that we at Memorial um, provide all the sports we can for students around in this area. How do you adjudicate whether or not it gets turned over to law enforcement? Is that up to the person who comes forward with an allegation? No, if it's a criminal um, activity, uh, we do turn it over to law enforcement. So, um, but that is done in discussion with uh, the, the person who brings the allegation forward. Uh, let's talk about housing, because we know there's a huge crunch here in St. John's and surrounding area. A year ago, vacancy rates around 7%, now probably less than 3%. How do you support your students? And I've spoken about the uh, house-sharing arrangement out of Simon Fraser University, where an incoming student can share a house with a senior in exchange for cut rent, just doing some duties around the home. So speak to the housing issue and what you think of that Simon Fraser University plan. Well, I think Simon Fraser's program is fabulous we don't have a staff member uh, you know with every every business has challenging hiring right now and we um we have lost our staff member that looked predominantly at housing we do have some uh, availability in our residence on the st john campus cornerbrook i've been talking to government we're going to have to really invest in more housing in cornerbrook it's a real issue there i also uh, wrote a letter in the telegram i asked and i'll ask your viewers you know if you have a spare room if you have space in your home if you're a senior and you live alone and you want to you know to have the companionship and company um look contact us contact our students services office and we will try to match you and connect you with students because there there are many students who are still looking for alternate uh, housing outside of residence is the simon fraser process and plan worth pursuing formally 
Yeah, it is. It is. And it's something we'll have our eye on, Patty, as we go forward. You know, creating an atmosphere, the institutions of higher learning and all, I don't know what the right thing to say is, uh, courses of interest or curiosity and adult learning, but of course, trying to suit the needs of the ever-changing global workforce. What has changed inside the development of programs? We know there's additional seats being added for nursing and what have you, but insofar as like tech and innovation and those types of affairs, how have you changed the offerings at Memorial University to accommodate what we see changing and the trends? So what we did last year um, and, the, and the year before, so this took about 18 months to develop, we brought in three new master's programs in the tech se sector, all filled up this year. So first year offering, um, so it will demand on that. We've also doubled the number of uh, seats in our computer science program. And so we're really looking and working in partnership with the tech center, sector to try to make sure that we have um, put in programs that meet their talent challenge. Um, we'll, we work very, very closely with them. You're right about nursing. We've increased nursing seats. We've increased seats in our med school. The other thing we've done is we're hiring um, a director for continuing education. We are going to look at a whole new approach to continuing education to provide access to people all through Newfoundland to, to courses they may be interested in, work with businesses on customized programming, which the Marine Institute does so very well, that industry partnership connection. So um, our programs are evolving and we're working very closely with industry, but also watching market trends really carefully. I, I follow this fellow on Twitter who looks at the universities across the country and examines just how many of their peer-reviewed papers get published, and Mondes punch way above its weight. I just want to throw that in there because those numbers are quite impressive. Most course offerings, not all, but most at Memorial University uh, of Newfoundland and Labrador, would have the opportunity to match the curriculum with the entrepreneurial spirit. We know that the Genesis Center has had some serious successes, but the same thing with the Center for Entrepreneurs at Memorial University. Talk about that marriage and how important that would be, in your opinion, to the ongoing economic prosperity of the province. Oh, it, it is critical. When you look, um, many people probably don't really know that Genesis is Memorial University, right? It is part of Memorial University. We also have student entrepreneur pathways, both for international students and domestic students, that we provide all kinds of programming, and our students do very well in competitions around entrepreneurship. Um, and it, it is critical. Many of the companies, in particular in the tech sector, that are now in and Newfoundland and Labrador, including Verifin, were students that came through the entrepreneurship programs at Memorial, then went on to Genesis, and then went on to start their companies. So this is part of, you know, the whole entrepreneurial eco ecosystem in Newfoundland and Labrador. And Memorial plays a very critical role, and we'll continue to do so. We're, we want to actually expand a number of our programs, and we have right now five student entrepreneur programs we're looking at bringing them all together under the same roof so there will be like a center that students will go to from any discipline and be able to get the supports around entrepreneurship. 100% biased opinion, but a good selection with Ed Martin to be the new director of Mount Center for Entrepreneurship. I'll just put that out there. Uh, Ed, friend of mine, and in fact, my brother-in-law, so and super, oh, super sharp guy. Uh, do you have any problem with your international students and getting their visas straightened out? Yes, that is an issue. We've just launched a major survey just to check with the international students that haven't been able to get their study visa. So we have a really good sense of which countries they're from and what obstacles they're facing. Uh, it is an issue Canada-wide, but particularly seems to be more pronounced in the Atlantic 
Canada region. And we're trying to get the presidents in Atlantic Canada of the universities are working together to try to get a handle on that and why why we seem to have more students waiting for study visas than other parts of Canada. Um, a very interesting dilemma that we'll be looking into. What, what can they do to get help? Is there an online solution available? Is it one-on-one counselling or is it just a matter of time before it works itself out? What do you say to the student particularly? Well, it's a matter of time, um, unfortunately. We we do lobby quite aggressively with uh, the federal government on this. A uh, point of interest for you um, is our international student numbers are the highest ever here. We're at 4,220 students. Uh, I'll put a comparison to pre-pandemic. That's 1,000 more international students that are uh, coming to Memorial. So we're, this is an area that we're really focused on and providing supports for the students when they get here. Uh, so we're doing very well in our international numbers. This is a maybe a possibly a very vague question. I'll try to tighten it up. So the campus experience, and you know, like for a tenured professor to have the freedom academically to say what he or she thinks and feels and to write what they hear she is interested in. How about for the students to create a space where, you know, for instance, the issue surrounding Matt Barter, for them to criticize you if they see fit, for them to criticize the Board of Regents if they see fit, or a professor, or what have you, to know that I can say what I want to say, as long as it's appropriate, and we're not talking about any physical uh, issues and altercations. How can you create a space like that on Memorial University's campus? Because that is part of being a university student. That's part of the growth. That's part of campus. It absolutely is. And our professors have academic freedom to be able to challenge, you know, administration, and they do so. Um, and so can students. We, you know, students protest all the time, um, and we um, allow them to support them. I guess the challenge for us is if it becomes there is a line we want to educate our students around, around legitimate protests and harassment and there is a difference in those approaches so you know um, i would say the majority um, of the students protest and they protest around issues they they do it well they do it appropriately and we encourage it i even did a twitter with the uh, the student union on moving day where they talked about on um, the day of protests that they're having in november encouraging students to get out and i encourage students to get out also and that is an important part of student life is the, the right to have your voices um, out there and to protest peacefully. And we would like to see that happen. I appreciate your time this morning, Dr. Timmons. Good luck to your staff and faculty and all the students, of course, in this fall semester. Well, thank you, Patty. And to your viewers, when you see our students out there, be kind to them, say hi, and welcome them to our province. Thanks for this, Dr. Timmons. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Vian Timmons, of course, the president of Memorial University. We appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Danielle, or Danielle, is it Danielle? Danielle is an ER nurse. We'll hear from her after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number three. Good morning, Danielle. You're on the air. Good morning. Um, I heard a few people mention lengthy wait times. I'm actually an emergency. Um, emergencies across Canada use something called CTAS. It's the Canadian Triage Acuity System. Okay. You can actually look it up online, or, and it also has an app. But uh, it, might, it might shed some clarity to the situation of length of lengthy wait time. I mean, I understand that it's how frustrating it is. You're in pain and, you know, you don't want to be waiting, but 
something like a broken leg that somebody has mentioned would be, it's not life-threatening, so it would be a bit of a weight. Okay, can you tell me what the name of uh, the software or the app or the website is again, please? It's the Canadian Triage Acuity Scale. Acuity, that's the word I didn't hear properly. Okay. <laughs> yep, so that might shed some light on the situation. Yeah, uh, absolutely it will, because if there's standards, national standards, it would be helpful to know what they are. There was also a comment offered by a listener that said, you don't really know what healthcare professional that one patient or another may need to see. I might have to wait to see a doctor or an MD. I might be able to see the next available nurse practitioner. How does that factor into triage? Uh, again, that depends on what you're triaged at. Um, in emergency, you'd often see an emergency doctor. And depending where you're to it, and what uh, services are available at that site. Yeah, because I was receiving... Uh, antibiotics, a couple had an infection after root canal, and of course I was set up with a nurse practitioner. And I didn't need to see the doctor once I was deduced. I had, uh, I was a, I was in and out a couple of times a day for a few days, so that's how I was seen, and that's how I was triaged, I suppose. I really appreciate the information. So Canadian triage acuity might be something I'll have to investigate a little further so I can handle those calls a little better. Yeah, well, you might not understand all of it. I definitely won't. Definitely <laughs> lead to some clarity. <laughs> And just, just for listeners to be mindful that nurses and all healthcare workers are working ridiculous hours and very uh, stressful times. Are you a full-time permanent nurse, Danielle? And feel free not to answer personal questions. I am not. I Unfortunately, it's very difficult to be a full-time nurse right now. And that's what we hear. The survey that was conducted by the Registered Nurses Union was quite clear. People are willing to leave full-time permanent positions to be able to strike a work-life balance as a casual. So is that as common as the survey seemed to indicate? It seems to be with my co-workers. It's an interesting predicament we find ourselves in. And again, these are personal questions, and just feel free to say you'd rather not answer it. Some people talk about just how much I get paid. And it would be the be-all and end-all. Just for you and what you hear amongst your colleagues, where does pay rank up with work-life balance, with uh, opportunities to get free time, spend time with family, vacations, you know, relationship with the regional health authority? Where does pay stack up? Um, while pay is important, uh, I mean, I'd rather be able to get home at the end of a shift. If you go in to work a 12-hour shift, and you end up staying for 16, 18, 24 hours, sometimes even 36. Pay isn't that important. Danielle, appreciate the information and what you do. Thanks for this. No worries. Thanks. See you later. Bye. That's Danielle, straight from the ER, knows what she's talking about. There you go. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Placentia West Bellevue. That's Jeff Dwyer. Jeff, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm okay. How about you? Good. Not too bad. Uh, just calling in, I guess, about uh, the uh, Combat Chance Refinery uh, accident on Friday. And uh, it's been a pretty uh, hectic weekend, I guess, kind of thing. But uh, I think that uh, the workers certainly know that uh, uh, we're there to uh, help them in any way they can to provide any supports or anything like that. And that's obviously where our thoughts and prayers are this morning. I know the union, we spoke to Ron Thomas earlier about what they're doing for those impacted, whether it be directly or indirectly, what specifically is available through the provincial government or your office for any support someone might need? 
Well, if there's anybody that, uh, you know, presents uh, with any uh, particular uh, instance, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, we know about the, the physical health of the uh, workers that were injured, and there's a couple that uh, have been uh, released from hospital, but six still remain, and obviously our thoughts and prayers with them. But anybody that, uh, you know, is presenting with uh, any kind of mental health issues or anything like that, they can certainly uh, uh, get a hold of our office, and we'll certainly uh, be able to help them reach out to Eastern Health to get whatever supports in place that uh, they would need at this time. Of course, we're going to have the uh, Occupational Health and Safety and others as part of the investigation. To the best of your knowledge, who else is involved in this type of investigation? Uh, well, workplace health and safety, obviously, once there's an injured worker, that uh, triggers an automatic investigation. So uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of different entities that will be uh, investigating this from many different angles. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not here to speculate or anything like that. I just want to get to the bottom of uh, what happened and uh, make sure that, uh, you know, the... the investigation is very thorough and conclusive as to uh, uh, what happened so that we can prevent it from happening again. A hundred percent. I was just curious if there was a formal, because I know there was a change some years back where it wasn't just automatically simply occupational health and safety. If there was any potential for criminal uh, act to be part of an accident and the RNC would be involved right away. I was just wondering if that was official or do we know at this moment or we're still sifting through some of the details? Uh, while details are still being sifted through, I mean, obviously the RCMP would be involved uh, being uh, outside the metro region and stuff like that, but uh, it is uh, it is being thoroughly investigated and, and you know, rightfully so. Um, like I said, uh, the more eyes that are on it, I guess, would put in more checks and balances because, you know, there has been a great safety record at the refinery for the last uh, almost 25 years uh, since the, the last accident, which was very uh, tragic. A couple of people and, died uh, then, wasn't it, in late 90s? Yeah, there was. And there was actually some people that I spoke with over the weekend that uh, experienced that event as well. And uh, um, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say is uh, that they're quite over that incident yet. So uh, this one here is uh, conjuring up uh, some uh, old thoughts, I guess, kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I think events like this obviously are what brings safety to the forefront and you know we uh, we wish it never happened but uh, you know when stuff like this does happen we all have to pull together to make sure that uh, it doesn't happen again appreciate the time thank you jeff thank you very much patty i appreciate it and like i said our thoughts and prayers go to uh, uh, the workers that were injured and also all other workers because you know it's like a family and a very tight-knit community at the refinery no question thank you Thank you, Patty. Well, you're welcome, Jeff. Bye-bye. It's Jeff Dwyer. He's the PC member of Placentia West Bellevue. Break time. When we come back, Gary is back to talk about gas mileage, and then Lloyd wants to talk about immigration in the province. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number three. Gary, you're on the air. Good morning, Pat. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Gary. How are you doing? Um, I just have some concern. and I'd like to uh, talk about gas range. Um, when you fill up a vehicle at a, a gas station, I guess you can hit a certain trip button on your 
on your car and it'll tell you roughly how many kilometres you will get off that tank of gas. Yeah. I've done a little, a little test over the last number of weeks and I've come up with a conclusion that I went into uh, Costco and uh, filled up my vehicle and it told me at that particular time that I would get roughly 520 kilometres on the tank of gas. Okay? That was the guess that your dashboard gave you, yep. That is correct. That was at Costco. So about a week and a half, two weeks later, I went to one of the gas stations here in the city, filled it up. The fuel stopped, you know what I mean, saying that your vehicle is filled up. So I got back into my vehicle, and it said that I can get a range of 620 kilometers. Yeah, now it would have nothing to do with where, where you bought the gas because your vehicle doesn't know where you are. No. But I don't understand if my vehicle is telling me that my is filled up, why would it say that I can get 100 kilometers less at Costco than elsewhere, than somewhere else in the Yeah, city? it wouldn't matter about where you got the gas. It would matter exactly how many liters were put in the tank that day. So there's a difference yeah. between being bone dry and having you know, 20 litres in the tank. So I guess that's where it boils down because driving mileage is pretty much basically uh, distance travelled divided by litres consumed. Uh, Okay, uh, okay. I normally go to a a gas station in the city. I normally go there because cars goes out of my way. But anyway, so when I go to a gas station here in the city and I purchase my gas, when I fill it up, it always says in the 600s. It always says that. For some reason, when I go to Costco, I'm getting 100 kilometers less. Yeah, I'm not sure what to say beyond the fact that your vehicle, there's a sensor in your tank that has a programmed in, like for instance, when you buy a new vehicle, it says you get X number of kilometers per per tank, uh, per liter, highway, number, and city. Then that's wired into your car. So it doesn't uh, include... Uh, if you were hard on the gas pedal or things like that, or you had extra weight in the bed of the truck, or you had eight people in the sedan, it doesn't factor that kind of stuff in. But this is a program in your car. The program has nothing to do with where you bought the gas. It simply has a, a program that says, here's how many liters you put in, here's how many uh, kilometers we think you will get with the tank as it sits today. It doesn't know that you bought it at Costco. It doesn't know that you bought it at Irving. So I'm not sure what else to uh, what to say to that. So why? So I don't why know. My, like, yeah, and I did do, do a small bit of research, and it's, it's saying, and this was in the, I guess down in the states that Costco gas you will get uh, less per gallon than you would actually get, say, with another regular gas station. I don't know why it indicated that, but a hundred kilometers in a difference. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to speak to that, but the they get the same gas that everybody else gets. I'm just wondering why we why I'm getting less kilometer. Is that the reason why the gas is so che- is, is seven or eight cents cheaper because you're not getting the amount of gas that you're no no to they have they have to calibrate their pumps How like would you know that. But what? you're saying you're t- you're telling me like you know this stuff. How do you know this stuff? Well, they have to have their their pumps calibrated like everybody else. Once again, the, that's a, a government issue. The government doesn't care if you're Costco or Irving or Esso or anybody no, else. No. Calibration is calibration. It's 
it's just something that's formally done to pumps. Mm -hmm. There's actually a place that you can complain about gas okay. pump cal calibrations. There's a sticker right on every pump that gives you the info. Yes, I see it. Yeah, I see it. I just, I just kind of just got my attention. I, I, and I said to my wife the same thing. I said, like, the next time you go get gas, go go somewhere in town and go to Costco and see if, if I'm right or wrong. I figure once your car is filled, this is how far you're going to get, roughly, within a few kilometres. You don't mind 10 kilometres, but when it comes to, like, 100 or more, to me, there's something wrong. What I would do is I would, at the first point you made is about setting your trip meter. When I fill yeah. up, I don't necessarily do it all the time. Sometimes when I think of it, I'll do it, especially if I'm taking a trip around the highway somewhere. Right. If I was you and you're just curious to that point, I yes. just set the trip the trip meter and remember yeah. exactly what the forecast my dashboard told me versus what yeah. I actually got. But then, of course, it's all the other variables that I have to factor in. How fast were you going, highway versus okay. city, weight in the truck, people in the vehicle, the temperature, all of those things factor oh, in slightly. Yeah, I understand that. I definitely will. And if I do see the numbers uh, the same as why I'm calling you, I will call you back again. You're always welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Joe says, some flex fuel vehicles can measure ethanol content and adjust accordingly. And fair enough. There's a, a list of variables that leads to how much you get in the way of mileage. Uh, all the aforementioned. How hard you press the gas pedal, how heavy the vehicle is, whether or not it's an empty bed in your truck or the sedan is packed. and the, It's the temperature and the ethanol contents and the difference between regular and supreme. All of those things factor into eventually what your mileage will be. Uh, let's see here. I'll take another one before we get to the break. Line one, Lloyd, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Okay, thanks. You? Patty, I just want to talk about, uh, I guess, the immigration policy, I guess, say, Newfoundland or Canada or whatever. The Premier's been on saying any doctor that uh, wants to reside or stay in Newfoundland to contact his office. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for highly qualified, skilled people to move into the country and move into the province. Mm-hmm. For the past three months, I've had two people living with me who want to immigrate into Newfoundland. She was a doctor in her home country for 10 to 12 years, a GP. She studied me and became a, uh, I don't know we call it, a pediatrician, obstetrician, or maybe two or three different names here in Canada and Newfoundland. But, uh, she worked at the hospital reading the ultrasounds for the babies and diagnosing their health conditions and all that until they were born and that, right? Okay. He's an electronic engineer, got many years' experience. We've reached out to different government officials here in the land, departments and immigration friends of mine. We were told probably the best route to go would be under an LMI or the PMP thing. There's a couple of local people in this area that would hire them tomorrow. Not as a profession, after a profession, they left the country down there. But just to give them a job and keep them here in the area, there's a local fast food joint here that uh, we found out does has an LMRI. We went and put in a resume there, and that gentleman was thrilled, hopefully one time. But we go back, and you're overqualified, underqualified, or the last thing that I was told was the reasons of concern. Okay. And so what's the end result here? Are they working towards their accreditation to work as electrical engineers and doctors? 
we can't seem to make any headway here with it. We called the premier's office when he came on in TV and on the news saying any doctor here and all and called and wanted to stay. We never, ever got a, a return call. Well, I think you should probably move on to the minister's, uh, the Office for Health and Community Services because there's a doctor who's a newcomer, just moved here from Mississauga. They, they're an immigrant to Canada in the last 18 months, recently moved from Mississauga to here. They're reporting having great satisfaction working through the minister's office about these accreditation issues and help with getting English as a second language training and all those types of things. So this person seems to be having great satisfaction. So maybe that would be the, the bare suggestion I have for you, is go right to uh, Tom Osborne's office and see what is in place for the exact circumstances that your friends are facing. Now, we've uh, reached out to Mr. Osborne's office, too. We still haven't had any return calls. Okay, do you have a... Op- and we were given a gentleman's name, I guess, Tom Osborne's, that was, we were told, right-hand man as such. And we're still waiting for some kind of a response. I tell you what, uh, if you can, send me an email. I'll see if I can get you a direct contact person. I can't remember who told me the name at this right off the top of my head at this moment in time, but if you send me an email, I'll try to find you direct contact information, telephone and email address for your friend, especially the healthcare professional. Yeah, it was rather, like I said, it was rather frustrating because, like I said, this local fast food drink is willing to hire him tomorrow, but he's working through a, a local company here that does the hiring, different things and that. And like I said, they, they, they say they're overqualified, underqualified, and again, like I said, the last thing was their age was a concern, yeah. which is, to me is discrimination. And it's ridiculous. There's a certain amount of ageism that's out there in the general public, especially when it comes to employment opportunities. There's no doubt about it. But I just find, like I said, it's frustrating. Well, those people right now are making plans to leave the country again. And that's not good. You know, we, we, we've got a doctor and a highly skilled, two highly skilled people here that, unfortunately, we don't seem to find out on any way to help these people resolve the issue here. And we're talking about keeping as many skilled folks that we need in this province for our economic viability and sustainability. So 100%. I'm glad you called on this this morning. Lloyd, if you send me an email regarding the healthcare professional in particular, I'll see yep. if I can get you some contact. All right. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. All the best. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, da, 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 da. So get a lot of emails about gas mileage. It's always funny uh, what catches on with uh, listeners. Yeah, and this person is saying the same thing I did about temperature, how hard you are on the gas pedal, driving in heavy, heavy city traffic versus traveling on the highway. Uh, the, did I say temperature already? But that factors in. So there's a lot to it. And, of course, if you see the sticker on the side of the car window or the vehicle window, that's at ideal conditions, right? Ideal conditions with, and I think we've, somewhere in the fine print, I'll say, with either one just one driver on board because I'll have different mileage if I've got the bed of my truck full. I'll have different mileage if I've got a sedan packed tight with gear for a vacation and a bunch of people in it versus simply driving by myself with no, nothing in the trunk. So there's a bunch of stuff that factors in. You're 100% right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get an update about what's happening out at Brea Renewable Fuel with Glenn Nolan. He's the president of United Steelworkers. Then Clarence wants to talk about the avian flu. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. 
welcome back. Let's go speak with the president of the United Steelworkers. That's Glenn Nolan. Good morning, Glenn. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, anyway, don't want to get a little emotional, but uh, we had a hard day uh, Friday at 4 p.m. Uh, with an explosion. So we had eight injuries, uh, and a lot more uh, uh, with the workers that uh, witnessed this, and we still have six in the hospital. Uh, I just want to let the, everyone know that District 6 uh, is uh, in full support. Uh, that's out in Toronto, and they also dispatched the ERT Saturday. Uh, it's set up in Arnold's Cove at the refinery, and we have uh, someone at the, uh, the health science. Uh, uh, right now, we're focusing on, on the uh, the uh, interworkers and their families, but plus uh, all the workers that are affected on site too. We have a lot of people that with the sister traumatized, so and they need support, so. They need to phone, phone in and get the support. And we have uh, we have emails gone out, and plus uh, we're trying to update as much as we can. But just want to say that workers, they come to work, they go home safe. That's the way it should be, and that's the way it has to be. Uh, once any worker gets hurt on our site, uh, we all get hurt all our families. So I just want to reach out and let you know the families are, are very appreciative. Uh, a lot of time at the hospital with the families. And so are all the other unions that are affected by this and the company. We're all there. But the families are so appreciative of all the prayers and support. And we have, and I, I want to make sure to state this because, yeah, this is Big incident, but we can't forget. We can't. When all the workers are, God bless, uh, they're going to have injuries mentally and disability type injuries to cure, but what happened in their minds, they, they still have that. So you just can't friggin' forget that, right? You have to be supportive. Not now, but the whole time. It's years and years and years of therapy. And sometimes we, people forget, and they can't forget. You just can't be here now. you got to keep praying because those traumatized will be traumatized for a while. So we have to, uh, we just can't be there now. We have to be there for a long time. But the prayers that, that are going out are, are really helping the families. And they're helping all of us because it's like a therapy. So... Well, I'm, I'm sure all hands appreciate the support. And, I mean, I hesitate to go any further until we know a bit more about what happened. You know, yeah. whether it be about anybody flag any safety concerns prior. I don't even know if it's appropriate for me to even go down those paths until people know more about what actually happened, because I don't know a darn thing. Patty, you hit it right on the nose. So the investigation's ongoing, OHS, and they had that area there. RCMP were in first. You know, there's a process to that. Uh and OHS has that area right now. And there's a thorough investigation by them before it's released. And then the internal investigation will be done by the company. We have our Josh here, Perry Felton, who's working very hard night and day with with the company's uh, investigation team uh, for the internal investigation. And they'll do more once it's released from the OHS. So there's a, there's a process for that. There's a, there's a, you know, 
that's that's something once we find out you'll uh we will all be working to make sure and uh, i i can't say because this happened again this happened again and it's we always say let's not let it happen again so but it happened again so we need we need we need a lot of work to be done once we find out the root cause and what what builds up to this and we will be part of it we all will be part of it and not here to blame anyone but we need to know that outcome so we can be safe before anybody goes at something you got to go to work and you got to come home to your families labor day came by and and these workers should not have to deal with should not have to deal with this Hopefully the recovery physically is uh, happens as soon as possible. And then, of course, some of the other injuries, so to speak, or the trauma experience is a different issue that's going to require likely more time and additional supports, and hopefully they'll be in place. And then when the, the investigation comes and goes and we have a better understanding of what happened and why, then we can, and absolutely we'll do it on this show, we'll talk about it further because until then, I think just focusing on the recovery of the families uh, directly and indirectly impacted is probably the best place to, for me anyway, for my focus. And then when we know more, we'll all take that on as information becomes available. Uh, I appreciate the time, Glenn. Take good care of yourself. Thank you very much. And uh, everybody keep those prayers coming because they're they're working. Thank you very much. Thanks, Glenn. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Glenn Nolan. He's the president of the United Steelworkers. Final break of the morning. When we come back, Clarence still there to talk avian flu. And Andrew Walsh, the deputy mayor of Marystown, to talk about street lighting in his community and French immersion. I made some comments about the uh, community losing their early French immersion for this year, and it's hard to know if you're going to get it back next year. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line four, Clarence, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good day, Patty. Um, I just heard the, the union man talking about uh, uh, injured workers so our prayers and thoughts with those families so uh, I called about uh, the boards that are, are dying and washing the shore and uh, our beaches right mm-hmm. and uh, like I know they came by here in the Portia Coast out like probably two or three weeks ago and sprayed uh, the dead birds like they put a red I guess where they wouldn't come back and camp the same homes type but they're still there nobody have uh, moved, removed them and they're still dead birds coming ashore so I don't know I talked to a provincial and they're saying federal but somebody said once they're dead on the beach it's provincial's responsibility I, I really don't know like in, you know it's strange there's uh, I seen a, a tree uh, again it's yesterday uh, washing ashore and uh, we have two loons there on the beach and there's a couple uh, look like sick ones there this morning and uh, he, like, there's a lot of beach in our area where he was whole uh, couple of kilometers of beach right here in Portugal Cove and then you got uh, all out towards Cape Race you know there's beaches but uh, and here's people saying like out in the, the drought to see a fox taking the bird out of the beach you know uh, I don't know I didn't see it but uh, so I don't know what uh, they should be 
somebody to, you know, clean up the dead birds or what's the story on it, you know? Well, there's always the whole finger point. Now it's the province, now it's the federal government. Look, the bottom line is I don't think you care. Nobody really cares. Just get, get them collected because we've been told not to touch them. Okay, so if I can't touch them, someone can touch them. So let's get that done. Uh, some of the problem that we're told is that it's just so many areas and so many birds that they're not getting to it as quick as they'd like to. A colleague of mine here at the office faced the exact same thing. They live on the water, and the beachfront is littered with birds. Yeah. Yeah, I, I called a couple of the, well, the provincial guy, the first fellow I called, was, he was in uh, Pettyspan, and uh, he put me through to my supervisor, and he gave me a couple of numbers for, you know, Canadian wildlife, and uh, didn't get an answer. And one uh, call, she said, uh, well, she was working from home, but then she couldn't take uh, messages, and you could email your, or give your, send your email, or you could get around the computer or something but I didn't do that but uh, no like uh, it's, it's kind of strange because we hadn't I don't think we have any collected in our area yet you know like I you know there some people have went that short in my probably that some are going off today and when they're dying but uh, I had one again uh, you know under lovely boards I suppose two weeks ago and I went out one morning it was right by my fence like Hadn't come there overnight, or had just dropped out. Of the, but there was not a mark on the board, you know. But there was a dead right by the on the fence. But I'm just up from the from the water here, just uh, you know, across the road type thing, you know. Yeah, well, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, if we've been told that we shouldn't do the cleanup ourselves, hopefully whoever's responsible can attend to your area sooner than later. But I've heard from a, a bunch of people in different parts of the province that say. They just can't believe how many dead birds are washing up on the beachfront, where either where they live or where they go for a walk or what have you. So, Clarence, let's hope that you get yours attended to. Uh, would you like to say anything else this morning, sir? No, but we do get we do have a lot of tourists. Like, and I don't sure. know if they're all familiar with it. Like, you see them in the beaches, and and uh, you know, some people, uh, mostly local people, they have their dogs are with them. I don't know. Like, what you know, it should be signs or something. You know, if, if there's Bobby, they're not that serious. I don't know, but uh, it's time. I think we we know some more about it anyway. You know, somebody come on and uh, and explain to us. You know, sure. And I I can probably uh, organize the proper guests. In fact, I've got two or three items that would fall in this particular minister's portfolio. And we had Dr. Montebecchi on to talk about it. There's a very limited, small, small risk to humans, but the dogs is a good part of the conversation. And you're right. Even if it's just the amount of tourists that might indeed uh, happen upon a big load of dead birds on one beach or another. So I'll get someone on on that one this week for sure, Clarence, and I appreciate your time this morning. And thanks. Thanks, Patty, very much. You're welcome. You. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go. Line number one. Say good morning to the Deputy Mayor of Marystown. That's Andrew Walsh. Deputy Mayor Walsh, you're on the air. Uh, good day, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay this morning. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Good. I got two uh, topics I want to uh, have a brief yarn with you about. I know we're running a little short on time here, so I'll get right into the first one. Uh, last fall, when we were a, uh, uh, a newer council, we had a lot of residents come to us uh, concerned about the Black Brook area. It's a road that runs between the town of Bjorn and the town of Marystown. It's an area that uh, gets quite dark, and in the winter, a lot of blowing snow, and visibility is usually reduced pretty low. So as a council, uh, we, you know, had a look at it and put a plan together. We approached the local utility and we got a plan to put 16 lights through the area so that it would, uh, would help address these safety concerns. 
since then, we're after sending out numerous emails uh, to try to get this plan, you know, underway for this coming fall once it starts getting dark again. But uh, it seems like a lot of the emails and the correspondence is uh, falling on deaf ears. I know it's a program that our community supported. Our council voted for it unanimously. A lot of people around the community constantly uh, talk to me and stop to me in the local grocery stores and stuff like that, asking, you know, when will this job uh, go underway? And right now, the answer is we don't know. We're waiting on the Department of Transportation to get back to us. It comes down to uh, we need the poles, the service poles, to be set about eight meters, nine meters from the center of the road to do any justice to this project. And right now they're uh, they're saying 13 and a half meters, which is over 42 feet into the woods. I don't really see the point of uh, putting streetlights that far off the road. Sounds unusually far. Yeah, that's right. And I believe there is a right of way there that if you ever had to expand the road or for snow clearing. Well, I believe you know if we ever get to the point that we got to put a two lanes up through Blackbrook, uh, we we have an awful population boom, and I'm sure we'd have the tax base in to address that problem and move those lights if we needed to. So I think, uh, you know, we're after con- uh, trying to contact Elvis Loveless and the Department of Transportation and his group, and uh, I haven't had any reply back yet. What Our role does Newfoundland Power play? Newfoundland Power will be the utility. They Right, so they, have you uh, tried them? Oh, they have They have everything done that they need to have. Oh, they're ready to roll, okay. Everything is, everything, the town, our budget set, uh, the utility has everything prepared and ready to go. But we're just waiting on the Department of Transportation to try to work with us to make this project make sense. Uh, like I say, if you put the lights 42 feet into the woods, it's just this is a waste of resources and a waste of time. It certainly doesn't sound like that distance will illuminate uh, throughout the road itself. Uh, before we run out of time, Andrew, keep us updated on that front. Did you want to make a comment about French immersion? Yes. Um, well, with the recent news story that we had this week about rural Newfoundland and you know, the federal government having a hard time to find workers to fill positions in, you know, uh, federal uh, jobs. It really shows how important this program is to rural Newfoundland as well. Um, You know, Marystown has had this program for almost 40 years. The success rate of the students that have come out of this program, it shows. Uh, I went to school with a fair amount of them, and they've uh, found positions and jobs through various levels of government and in the private industry too. I believe it is a very important program for our school to retain. I think it's been a little quick on the numbers being low just this year. The numbers look like they're almost going to double for next year. I think uh, the school board and the NLSD should really look at this in the Department of Education and really think, are you know, are they making too quick of a jump here? I think um, the program needs to stay in, in our school here in Marystown. It does well for the region and rural Newfoundland children in rural Newfoundland should have the same treatment as those in the Northeast Avalon. No, everyone here is paying taxes no differently and this program should stay right where it's too. Yeah, no argument for me. I think, uh, you know, even to just to find a one-year accommodation, because it looks like student enrollment numbers are stronger next year. So let's just make sure, like there's one mother I heard in the, in the news stories. She's got three children. Two have already started in kindergarten. They've uh, uh, made grade three and four or whatever. And the newest one going into kindergarten this year won't have the same opportunity. It just doesn't make any sense. No, it, it don't. Like, and you know that the numbers are growing for next year. Um, I really think they're being quick on this decision. Like, I, I understand that you know all departments are working with a tight budget these days. 
and the you know the principals and school boards are trying to do their best to make sense of this. But when you see some very small schools get new units open up, and the main you know one of the biggest schools on the peninsula get units pretty well took away or trying to realign them. I think there's lots that can be done, and this is a program that has a lot of significance for the area and for our province. And I think uh, we should really don't pull the trigger too quick on this. You know, it's a great program, and this area could certainly use keeping it, and I believe the students in this area deserve it. Uh, You've had the last word this morning. Appreciate the time, Deputy Mayor. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. Sandra Walsh, he is the Deputy Mayor of Marystown. All right, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.